Welcome to Vendée Radio. It is the 11th of March, the Feast of St. Vincent of Lyon, in the year of the Incarnation 2023. My last conversation was with Mr. Will Tucker regarding his paper on Kabbalah and political religion. And today I am delighted to be joined by his friend and fellow Dr. Deep State host, Dr. Douglas Haugen. Welcome, Dr. Haugen. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for having me on. It's a great pleasure to have you on, Dr. Haugen. I've benefited tremendously from listening to your broadcasts on the Dr. Deep State channel. And I've recently been reading your your last book, which is Seeing Through the Singularity, Uncovering the Cosmic Conspiracy. Dr. Haugen is a, a lecturer of political science at South Texas College. And his research has focused on the history of ideas and the epistemic construction of empire. And in listening through your corpus on the Dr. Deep State channel, I can see how you've been on this journey, Dr. Haugen, where you've begun by considering the deep state and considering oligarchy. Clearly, your own expertise in political science has been very important there. And over time, you've combined that knowledge of political science with more esoteric aspects of of study, including esoteric biopolitics and eschatology. Dr. Haugen's work extends the history of ideas and the epistemic construction of empire into man's final political project, the creation of a new cosmic order. Dr. Haugen is currently working on a new book in pursuit of the metaverse. And I'm right in understanding, Dr. Haugen, you are a recent convert to the Catholic faith. That's right. I was received into the church last Easter, so almost a year. Deo gracias. I can really see the fruits of, of your conversion in your work in some of your broadcasts over the, the last year and, 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 and prior to that as well. So perhaps you could enlighten the, the listeners a little bit on your own journey of studying the deep state and how this has deepened with other dimensions of study, sociology, culture, political religion, and then these esoteric themes. Yeah, there's so many different parts to put together. I suppose one thing I could begin with would be, I mentioned a few shows ago, that was intrigued about 20 years ago with um, neoconservatives. Who are they? How can you get um, a blue team and a red team, the Democrats and the Republicans, as we call it over here, They'll argue about any little trivial thing, but when it comes to bombing foreign countries with barely an explanation, everybody's on board. It has a political component. Um, How does somebody square what we're doing there with religion? And there's a couple times in history during the Crusades, which I'd like to come back to. How do we square that? How did the church end up here during the 30-year war? How did we end up here? And um, one of the things I'm going to submit is we are in a transitional point in the world where we're moving toward a new construction of reality. Um, 
But I guess if I kind of simplify why I'm doing this and where we're going, I'm going to suggest there's a certain line throughout history that we would call you know, sort of a blockchain of being. And I can go into that, but it's our union with God, the creator, um, God that it's the, it's what is behind reality. It's what's the, the force of everything. And sometimes we don't miss this force that's always paralleling it through history. It's parasiting it. And um, when we think if you're a Christian and you've read texts about St. Paul, you need to get this doctrine right. And you're not just saying, because it, why? Why? Because it, it, because if you don't get it quite right, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be worshiping another gospel, another God, and there's going to be consequences. And when we think of that part of scripture where it tells us that you're ready to meet your maker, you're going up there and, uh, and God's going, sorry, I don't know you, you workers of iniquity. And it's it's one of the most uh, just chilling parts of the gospel, that somebody could think that they had it right. And I wonder if we don't live in an age where a lot of people think they have it right. Um, we know there's a lot of confusion. Um, how do we know we have it right? So one of the reasons, you know, we can almost go back to the scripture when Paul is citing the people that they have it wrong. Why are they, why are they ungrounded and why are they going in the wrong direction? And it's a theme that happens throughout history. And this theme that people that have it wrong, I'll call it the blockchain of becoming. It's really the blockchain of the serpent with all his techniques and his money that he's going to make something that looks so close to the gospel, and it's going to come alive, and it's going to produce these thought forms that in society will let you function perfectly well in society, but they won't allow you to have union, a hypostatic union with the creator. So we can be sort of duped. We can be very popular in society. We can be very successful, but we contain these ideas that I call egregore, egregores that we get from a God of our own mind, and I can describe who this God is, and um, we can somehow not know it. So when we bring up topics like Gnosticism or Kabbalah and why do you want to go down this avenue, I like to, you know, for the sake of this discussion, keep it really simple so you can see the fine line working throughout history of something that's the true gospel and something that's a counterfeit. The true gospel is creating, it, it's part of God's mystical body throughout history. And in a sense, what's being created is a counterfeit, um, a counterfeit Christ, an antichrist. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's esoteric terms for this. And his body will be produced from these egregores. And I can go into any of that that you'd like. Let me hit this. Um, because pulling together all these years from political science to theology to esoterics, it, it was quite a journey. In our time right now, whether I'm talking to Christians generally, Catholics, agnostics, probably conservatives, the ontological war of our time comes down to this, and we see it. That the powers that be want to eliminate any truth claims in the world. So we 
the, with the wokeness, you know, if I said this five years ago, people would kind of be very, but right now, what's a man, what's a woman, an X, Y, and Z, um, that this will be generally true for anybody that's a conservative that just wants to know there are some certainties in life. For Christians generally, claims that were made in the Bible that seem to be eternal claims from God. But in particular, the target in the world today is um, Catholicism, the sacraments, the mass. Only Catholicism can make unique truth claims because it is historical. And with that history through the sacraments, God lives through history in his essence that's part of the sacramental economy. So the further I went into looking at the deep state, what they want, what is reality, the Eucharist, where all signs and symbols come back to that point, is the bullseye. And when I say the powers that be, let me frame it in a way um, that might be helpful. Um, this has been out for about 20 years now. Hart and Negra, two now famous political scientists, um, discussed the concept of uh, sorry, empire. And we have different lenses for looking at empire. And they went through a neo-Marxist lens, which I think succinctly, we see it right now in 2023, more than any other time, really describes where the mindset of the whole world is. And the idea that they came up with borrowing from Guy Dubard's post-Marxist thinking, we live in a spectacle. We could and we can translate this back to the spectacle of Rome. It's got many components, but the spectacle, you know, it can include politics and administration and so forth, but we know it by the show out there, the, the, the Netflix, the television, the radio, the media, the back loops, the social media, the whole world, and they would say, this is the glue. We're one mind right now, regardless of the language. So it's sort of the, the foundation for like a sort of new Babylon is there. And even for a Pope's Marxist, they, they're, they're troubled by this vulgar materialism in the state. And their questions as, as, as post-Marxists are, how do you get the ruling elite to submit to the true, the good, and the beautiful, because even Marxists sometimes have an intimation of what that is. They're not seeing this because through their limited eminentized uh, lens, they don't have a transcendent view. Um, as William Desmond, uh, I'm getting more into radical orthodoxy, would say, you can't know the eminent unless you know the transcendent. So their idea now get this, this is from the most power, this has been borrowed through all the disciplines uh, across the university, this, this lens, which is essentially just an eminent lens of reality. And, and the, so, so it's a dominant theory right now. This is the glue that holds the people, the world together. How do you, how do you somehow have any kind of pushback with this power? And this is a long sorted story but the only chance if anybody's truly interested in having a perspective on what's going on, I will submit in part, postmodernism offers a per perspective to critique the modern, 
but what's but in a sense the in in you know all that's left if we're truly trying to going to change the world if this is just the end of the age and we'll wait till it crumbles and see what happens the catholic church and the eucharist are the only and that's a tricky metaphysical thing that i have to say consuming the true spectacle control putting our eyes on the true um life it's the spectacle is a is a world where everything becomes self-referential we live in this sort of uh saint thomas would call it debased ecstasy and it all of these things are really sort of a misguided transcendence we are all as human beings made in the image of god something deeply wants to reconnect with the tree of life but we're always drawn back to the tree of good uh, knowledge of good and evil this necessarily dialectical tree that's always going to make it through life with the cooperation of man in this other lens and so i can come back to that story of why god is the true spectacle but one of the short answers that augustine realized and this is part of our time the two things we have to do is defend wherever you're coming from defend these eternal truths and i i believe the eucharist will empower us to do that and see that as part of our dilemma and secondly and this is something that nobody wants to hear but i it was an insight from saint augustine the accounts of the roman amphitheater glued the entire system of empire together from the emperor to the plebeian was assigned to go to these things and the effect it had on you was life changing you could not become unattached to the empire it had a certain ontology of demonology augustine would say that you'd go there and how horrific these things are and we know stories about christians getting sliced up and so forth but these things were beyond horrific it would blow your mind <clears throat> but when you'd go out in the streets of rome you know you didn't you didn't want to see bloodshed you could turn it off and turn it on it's not like you went crazy like you're a demon infest but people were in fact demon obsessed and we don't know that today you know that we could act and everything seems so mild mannered and stuff like that augustine would say to truly consume christ to bring his essence into reality and into history so that it can be shared the only thing that was possible said augustine was to consume the true spectacle it was our we don't want to hear that and so necessary part of this before somebody could be baptized and catechized they had to be exercised and he said there that's the only way christianity had a foundation and this is something nobody wants to hear today but i truly believe at some level until somebody can start pulling away from the spectacle the netflix the gaming with all its you know this is like he's why do we have a desire deep inside of us to watch people die in video games and it's because there's something in us that truly likes that um what you know the the pornography the news cycles the blips the facebooks the likes we all know what we're talking about even when we try to move back and sort of just get a tertiary account of this you know even on catholic media so it wants to pull us back into the spectacle and we wonder you know in reality is this guy telling us to go and live in a cabin in the woods 
No, but I am convinced that that's the blind spot that everybody has. We're living in a world that's massively deceived. And part of the deception comes through these mind demons that we think we're good with God, but we're not really truly able to see that until we really sanctify ourselves and separate ourselves from this wicked system that is all around us. And it's a system that we're all living in. When we, even when we try to be theological or inspired, we have been, we've been reared in this uh, debased ecstasy where transcendent can, transcendence can be so based that it can be from pornography to having a pint of Haagen-Dazs and putting on the Netflix and it's all skewed away from the true transcendence because we all deeply desire this. This is how, and part of the thing is a lot of people have just never been introduced to the transcendent frame to put this together. So before we can kind of talk about what movements we might want to do or the banking crisis or anything else, we have to deal with something inside of us. So again, I've cited many times um, Eric Vogelin on here, and if he were going to analyze the world, he would do it backwards of everybody else. Every other analyst in any other department at the university would look at events out here and here and here. And he said the problem is spiritual because in this classic sense, we are connected through a chain of being um, that includes angels and arch archangels throughout uh, up into, into the heavens. And when one part of this is sick, it affects the whole cosmic order. And he said, so we're a sick society, so we're gonna have sick policies and get sick results. So we have schools that dumb us down, we have hospitals that make us sick. And the 1984 world, when you think it couldn't get any nuttier, you open the newspaper the next day, even when you're trying not to be part of the spectacle and you're going, and, and I frankly wonder if, if we have any leverage to actually pull ourselves apart. Um, demon possession, you know, I think some people can slowly exercise themselves away from this, but I would say it's the problem of our time. And if I had any suggestion to myself or anybody else, it's to pull yourself out of this system and to understand that the battle in front of us is for this alternative blockchain that's trying to get their own transcendence, their own union with their God. And it means for them breaking down all of the barriers of distinctions of reality. One of them are the, the distinction that holds the eminent and the transcendent frame, but it's all distinctions. So their journey causes us to say, you know, speak in pronouns. <laughs> and it, it, so why is this craziness? Because it shouldn't on the surface. You know, if you said people were using each other's bathrooms five years ago, it would have been crazy. Now you're a terrorist if you object to it, right? How does this happen? And of course, it's built into the democratic process in part and into the spectacle. But until we truly see, you know, wherever you are in your spirituality and whatever belief system you have, that this is fundamentally spiritual. So what I tried to do is seeing through the singularity you can kind of go through times and look at this and was there a Jesuit here and was there a Mason there? So the cosmic conspiracy I'm looking at is sort of this battle between being and non-being. The blockchain of being uh, uses the hypostatic uh, union. We're, we're most powerful in getting the correct union when we have the fundamentals. 
and the fundamentals really began, you know, and it took a few centuries for Christians to really get this solid, but with the apostolic creed, the things we say on our rosary, our father, as in heaven, so below, this is the kingdom that he wants. That's his, that's his wish, that's his will for us. Um, and of course the blessed mother that balances us out in the cosmic order. Um, so when we start talking about categories like what is a Gnostic, what is a capitalist, one of the commonalities you're gonna find is that they're grounded differently from a proper Catholic that has these things that took centuries to figure out. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Christ was all man and all divine. And so in his, um, when, as, as Christ comes and changes reality, this word meta takes on a different meaning. It's sort of something that's in our midst, but yet beyond us. And that's the reality that we live in as Christians, if you have a proper frame, because a lot of this I got into the confusing between the kingdom of heaven here and the kingdom of heaven on earth. So with the proper frame, after Christ came, we behold an image that is sort of at arm's length. It's a utopian vision of, uh, it's a divine utopian vision. And Paul would say, it's sort of like looking through a glass dimly. We see it, we move toward it, but between our eminent frame and our, this post, because God came into history, God became a man so that we could become gods. Now the other chain is gonna become God in a different way, right? But we, be, so we become God. So how do we do that? We are in this perpetual frame between the millennial age, between realizing that true union in the beatific, beatific vision and where we're at now. And so the medicsy is a place that balances revelation and mystery. And we don't go in there. We don't presume the position of God to know what God thinks. And what we're going to find out over the last 2000 years, when people start going into that frame and poking into the mind of God or the logos, it always corresponds with civilizational unrest, uh, wars, revolution, genocide. And so there's a predictable program. And each time we have these bloodbaths and other events, we have the building of this unknown God. And the unknown God right now is basically the building of the Antichrist. And it's a building of a God of our own desires and twisted imagination that's being realized. And what we're being moved into right now is a breaking down of distinctions to get us from one era uh, into another, Baudillard would call this uh, the, the further sinking into the simulacrum when there's almost no connection to the, to the original. The most perfect kind of where signs meet their references point would be in the economy of the Eucharist, where the economy of the Eucharist holds together. We have fixed ontological understanding, fixed meanings, fixed definitions mediated through the eternal forms, this platonic existence that kind of, this is the, this is the mysterious place that we're supposed to respect. It's also a sacred place that we're supposed to respect. Um, and so that hyperstatic union uh, is what balances us in the medicsy. And part of the journey through the medicsy is just having faith in what was revealed it's oftentimes not sexy. You're not trying to go in there and figure things out. It's not a world of figuring out um, 
which bowl has been poured out you know, in the book of, you know, that kind of thinking takes us from one place to another. And that's part of the working of, of the magic. And what I can get into a little bit is how does this process work? Um, how does the magic work? Um, did I go on a little long there, Peter? No, that was excellent. There was a lot there. I'm struck, first of all, as you say, this idea of the empire spectacle, this counterfeit, because if there's any theme, governing theme through your works, as you said, it's Logos, the counterfeits of Logos, the city of God, the earthly city, which are identical with these two blockchains, it would seem. And you've got the, as you say, the the false spectacle and then the final end of the the Christian of the life of grace, which is the beatific vision, the seeing God face to face. You also have mentioned how the atonement, the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, is with the incarnation, the center of history, and that Christian civilization it flows from that act that offering of the God-man and therefore the Eucharist, the mass is at the heart of civilization. And as John Senior said, civilization was all about facilitating the mass, defending the mass, beautifying the mass. That touches on the lay apostolate as well why we need a, a suitably and appropriately reverential liturgy to express the profundity of that sacrifice. And if we don't have that sacrifice at the heart of our civilization, as you say, these counterfeits emerge and they gain strength. To return to what you said about the idea of an egregore, this is an idea that I've been introducing to our listeners in the last few broadcasts the word itself comes from the greek egregoros wakeful watchers it strikes me that that connects with this idea of woke this i would say weaponized vague term which denotes cultural marxism basically on the left and then this idea of the this growing idea of the great awakening on the right you've had alexander dugin juxtapose the great reset and the great awakening this idea of moving from dark to light with qanon so they seem to resonate with this this idea of an egregore it also you could say correct me if i'm wrong but it seems to be synonymous with ideology ideology defined as a deforming a deformed perspective on reality a distorted perspective on reality this is the world of isms i know that well for example martin moserbach who writes very well on the on liturgy he doesn't even like the term catholicism because it it makes the true faith the one true faith seem like just another ideology or just another offering in the marketplace of ideas whereas in fact it is objective reality yes and everything else is is false to one degree or another right 
Uh, Charles Taylor in the book, uh, The Secular Age, talked about the whole world now has become in the imminent frame. That means in the Middle Ages, there was, um, there was the sacred, the world was enchanted. It was a different world altogether. And the closing of modernity into this frame. But we still have, you know, Christ is still alive. So really what this eminent frame means, it's just pluralism. And this was, you know, this was the, I'll get you into how we got into this frame, but this is the assumption that you can make any kind of claims, but if they're exclusive truth claims, they, and so we began this in Vatican II, and I will submit Vatican II was kind of a microevolution. The forms were still there, but they're being stretched to their limits. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but uh, let me, what, what I'm gonna do now is maybe just take a little bit and just see how subtly similar this blockchain of becoming is. And some of the, just the indicators of the mindset, because I think we can have some ideas that are truth claims and, and others that are a little bit um, less so. Um, but again, when I say that the challenge today is among truth claims, the last bastion of holding truths is that the Catholic Church is the one true apostolic church that has the only historical claim back to Jesus Christ and that it is a replacement church. It replaced um, the, the uh, sacrificial system of the Old Testament and that we are replaced um, people of the covenant and fulfilled people of the covenant. And there is no work in process, right? Christ did it all on the cross. We're waiting for the beatific vision. Um, let me start here, um, which is an easy place in the garden. Um, some people suggest that this was sort of a holding area that God had even another place to uh, take his creation of men and his other creations. And that might be possible because when we think of the storyline of the serpent that begins in Genesis and ends with God throwing the serpent away so he can do no deceiving anymore. Um, So the fact that the serpent is present maybe means it wasn't God's final stage, but at any rate, the serpent seems the opening of the, eye of the serpent, and this is maybe a little simplistic, but it's just showing you an eminent frame of reality. And what it's essentially saying, if you wanna talk about the blockchain of becoming that looks just like the blockchain of being when you're truly in Christ um, through the Father and the Holy Spirit, um, it's essentially a blockchain of evolution. And that's what he's telling you, that we can co-create. The end of where this is going is essentially Teodeshadan's um, Nunosphere and his Omega Point. Um, so the Catholic right there, it's a Catholic worldview. I'll, I'll suggest another Catholic a thousand years ago that kind of brings this in. But it's this idea um, that basically has encompassed everybody today. and we can see when you sort of look at the world through the imminent frame and the transcendent frame, we see the narrative of evolution differently from somebody that would just look through it at the standard college classroom level. Evolution has 
become part and parcel of every single part of our um, academic disciplines, including oftentimes philosophy and religion departments. So what, okay. So, so all the way from the snake to Chardin, Chardin invites us, he says, I got this system of thought, it's like the logos, <laughs> but he goes and it's based in the system of, of evolution, but we're gonna be co-evolvers into where we're going. And the destiny is gonna be beyond distinctions and it's just a big blob of love. Who doesn't like love, right? So <laughs> we're going from the same. And he's telling us a, he has a separate track. We can have a hypostatic union here, or we can have a snake. But the snake's journey is always kind of exciting because it's always inviting us to creative imagination, a creative participation, a creative construction in God. So the God, the serpent here, he is a God um, that is the unknown God. He will become the unknown God. And that's the God that has to co-create with us. I'm gonna submit that this unknown God really appears at say in Paul's writing in the book of Acts. He's gonna do one of his initial ministries in um, Athens. And he's going to cite this unknown God. And he said, at that moment, that's the logos. That's what you, so all of our prophecies and all of Hellenistic thought are coming together. That's the point that unites all points within the pagan world and now this new religion. And it was a pretty shattering idea that's still with us today. It's at that precise moment that we get the battle between the revelation and the idol. And so we have this unknown God unleashed into the world that's going to co-create and eventually become at this point, the Antichrist, it's the anti-logos. So it's going to have this appearance, it's gonna be so tricky, it's gonna look so much like God, but it's gonna produce these things called egregores that kind of blind you to the true God. And they can come in the form of these isms and so forth. So I'm gonna lay something out right now that's come to me this week. I don't know if it's gonna make it into the book, but it's kind of fun stuff to think about where this God goes. I'm gonna come up with three periods of time. Oh boy, okay. These are connections I haven't heard anybody else make. And they're just a way to kind of get you thinking about how this antichrist is coming into the world. And so one of the dates will be the 12th century, the 17th century and the 20th century. So what we have in the 19th, uh, 11th century, we're talking about the 1100s, we have um, a figure named um, Jacquem of Flora. And counter this, so this is a monk that's going to come. You know, of feel right. Correct. And he is completely contemporaneous with Maimonides. And Maimonides is a, the, how the snake is going to work through history is he's going to get going, not from just being all in himself and the totality of reality, but he's going to become through negation of being. He's going to bring a consciousness and he's eventually going to become personalized at the end of history. So this negation is what we're, that's what we're seeing today. Everything is negated, Marxism and post-Marxism. Okay, so that's where this begins. It's a realization, it's transcendence through negation. It's a hyperstatic union through negation. It's a false transcendence, obviously, but it begins here. So Jacquem, if you're looking at this, what he produced there 
was he didn't respect that space between the vision. So he wanted to go into the mind of God and into the book of the apocalypse and start figuring, doing the date setting and all of this. This is a thousand years ago. And so his third stage, you know, there's the stage of the father, the stage of the son, and the third stage will have, it will, it's, it's an image of Tehard Shaddam's Nunes sphere. Uh, it's very much an image of Marx. It's very much an image of Hegel. It's very much a, a vi vision of Woodrow Wilson's New World Order. Um, and you can see these characteristics all along. And it really took another century till Thomas Aquinas saw what he was doing. And this was a hundred years ago. Uh, uh, this is a few hundred years before this would be called Kabbalah, before Lunaric or Kabbalah. But it's this um, apathetic uh, theology that's creating existence through negation of being. And if you look at that, that's what's carried out. Now, what's interesting is there was all these sort of cults of Jacam, the Holy Spirit cult, they're floating around. So it's out there in the ether. One thing about what I'm doing with this mode of looking at this as a, uh, of, uh, as a cosmic conspiracy is that the, it's going to produce these egregores, and I know this gets a little new agey sounding, but it has a morphic resonance. resonance. Um, Rupert Sheldrake is an English thinker who's kind of you know, initiated this. This would be part of Tehard's Nunisphere, and even um, Vernadsky, his parallel scientist, Russian scientist would say, in the biosphere, there's a sort of mist that's, and so the egregore kind of plays with it. It's out there, it's demonic. When it's released, um, it just as the metaphysical extends into greater itself, um, demonic ontology, when we sin, it extends beyond ourselves. Sometimes we really sin bad and we feel like we're going straight to hell, but it's out there. So the egregore, it's always in the ether and usually direct connections help, but I'm just saying after the 12th century, it's out there in the air and it's picked up with many different cults. Now this kind of thinking out, this, it, it's just laced with millennialism. Once you kind of pop into God's frame of mind, the earth is going to end or we have to participate in history. The unknown God can't know himself until we collectively reveal these things in history. Now, I know this all sounds crazy. This is the belief system that I'm talking about from a thousand years ago that the ruling elites embrace. You might not know about it, but it's very real. So just kind of seeing how it's so similar that it was actually written by a theologian. And now I'm not interested and he, he went to... He went to Jerusalem and so forth. I'm not interested, you know, in his connections with anybody or Maimonides or anybody. But what you're going to find in this pattern of these three different centuries is there's going to be civilizational chaos, massive bloodshed, and a uh, killing of the king ritual each time. And I can only tap on these lightly, but this all takes place after the siege of siege siege of Jerusalem, and not only were you know the main Muslim, the, the king's head was cut off, but multiple heads cut off. To keep it simple, this releases a lot of demonic activity, but the killing of the king ritual is an occult ritual. Um, and it's hard from our present perspective to think about just how shattering this is. But when you live in a world where you do believe the cosmos is connected to hierarchies in the cosmos, this is shattering to the minds of people and they're very susceptible to suggestion. And it's when you're going to do a major paradigm shift, you're going to see these things come along. 
So this idea of uh, the cult of the Holy Spirit, mass millennialism is a treat. This is going to become important. So, okay. It's out there. And a lot, especially during the period of um, the Inquisition, and there's a lot of what we call new Christians or conversos, they're especially attracted to the kind of energy that's released when you get into the millennialism. And they, they're the big throughout history, the spreaders of this. And sometimes like the early Gnostics that might have come over from a, you know, sort of a Hebrew background. Sometimes I think they could have had a, a sincere encounter with being, but the fact that they have, I think, sometimes a, cl a, a poor grounding makes them misplaced transcendence. And I don't know if I'm getting into too many terms. Okay, so we have the 11th century. This idea of negative theology is really at work. It's unleashing spirits and mindsets in the world. We can associate it with millennialism. We can associate it, as Jacquem said, that this is a God that comes to know himself through co collective realizations or actualizations in history. It's just the exact same words that Hegel the Hermetic would say, that Marx would say, that Shadon, Tehard would say. So we have this idea that's a thousand years old and it can sound very, very, very Christian. Let me jump ahead. Are you okay? Yes, I mean, there's many things there that, thoughts that that's provoked. Yeah, we had, a Eucharistic civilization, at least in Europe. Not saying it was perfect, but in in form, intention, principles. A ruling class, Christian monarchy, Christian nobility, again, with the right principles in the, the apex of Christendom, which has been attacked, this, this conflict, this war between the revolution and revelation, the egregore, Valentin Tomberg, he says that seeing as the diabolical is invert is the inversion of the logos, just as the mystical body of Christ comes from above, the mystical body of Antichrist, which you referred to a number of times, will come from below. Exactly. And so people are feeding it through opting for second reality and for giving themselves their will, their intellects to these mind prisons, to exactly. uh, these ideologies. And I just wanted to quote my friend, Dr. Sebastian Morello, since you've touched on Teilhard de Chardin a number of times. He said this, it always comes down to the same thing. Is nature supernatural, as Teilhard claimed, or is supernature natural, as Rana et al. claimed? Or are nature and supernature distinct but coextensive, as Aquinas claimed? That's the brilliance of that's the brilliance of Catholicism. Whenever you want to put into the dialectic, this or this Catholicism, it's both and. It's always it's there in the theology to solve all these questions. And I'm just going to jump on before I get back to uh, the English Civil War, which is kind of more of your ballpark. Um, I, I do want to mention something about Valentin Tomberg. I, I don't recommend anybody re read it. It's probably not most people's thing. It has tarot cards. On, it's it's going to turn people off. It did bring me into Catholicism. It was a big mover for me. And one thing I'll just suggest, Tehard, who is really hot with the Second Vatican Council, he was underground literature. He, this is as subversive as you can get. The antithesis of that is Tomberg. And what Tomberg's going to say is there's Catholicism and everything on the outside in one form or another is a parasite of it. 
Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you're right. May I just say, Professor Thomas Pink has characterized the the counts the conciliar period, the post-conciliar period, as the de-Augustinianization of the church. And right. de Chardin is the, you could say, very much opposed to St. Augustine of Hippo. And Wolfgang Smith, I think, relates an episode where he accosted Teilhard de Chardin after one of his subversive talks in the 50s and said, well, this doesn't accord with what St. Augustine says about nature and grace and about the two cities. And, and Teilhard de Chardin went bright red and that St. Augustine, he ruined everything in Christianity. So he kind of touched on there where the centre of this animus was coming from. Well, and, and before I get into this English Civil War, that was uh, Archbishop Vigano's attack on Benedict. And he went back to a dissertation that he wrote in Paris in 19... more than half a century ago. And he said that's what's, that's what's being hashed out right now in the post-Vatican era is it's being de-Augustinized, um, especially the distinction between the city of God and the city of man, it's being unearthed. So when we talk about these term permanent truths that we have to embrace right now, we have to recognize that that's what's coming apart. And again, I like the city of God and the city of man, but and they overlap because in the church, this typology, we will have wheat and tares, we will have saints and sinners and, <clears throat> And the blockchain kind of helps us a little bit more clearly see how these lines are running through the city of God and the city of man so that we can maybe discern maybe some of um, our own heirs in, in terms of what exactly is in the blockchain. Before I get to this English Civil War, let me just remind you, when the snake opens its eyes and this is the vision, and we can talk about, I, I, I noticed you wanted me to talk about money magic and stuff, because magic is a big part of this, right? Like we all wonder in a modern day, how does somebody even hold this paradigm? Um, evolution, as we understand it in the university today, it's not a scientific paradigm. It's a metaphysical presupposition. Yes. And it's a presupposition that there is no transcendent and you're going to see reality in completely differently under those sets of assumptions. And I can go on and on with examples uh, like rational actor model, it's just it's the stable of social sciences. It's assuming that we're calculating machines. It's taking all of the spirit, the mystery, our vices. It's, it's taking away the fact that markets can be manipulated and coerced. And it's a subtle subtleties, metaphysical subtleties of our reality are just dismissed out of hand. And so, um, so let me, um, let me, I was putting together these three little patterns that happen when the egregore is really built from below. And one of them is in the, it, with uh, Jacquem is really unleashing this and the cults, especially around Spain and Portugal, uh, for centuries are kind of just, they're, 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 okay. they're involved in this. Okay, so here's an interesting period of time. I'm gonna say about 1648, give uh, 20 years on both sides. So great civilization, civilizational upheaval during the 30 years war, you know, and it's complicated. Protestants, Catholics, sometimes Protestant and Protestant, it's very bloody. The whole understanding of reality and the world is being turned topsy-turvy. And some of these people, when they become unchained under Luther or just become uh, millennial and crazy and think the world's ending, you know, but we're more interested in this English piece. And I, I can only touch on this a little bit, but some of these things are 
crazy. Um, and again, I don't know if this can make it into the book, these three connections, but um, on top of this topsy-turvy situation, there's two deaths of the king simultaneously. They're gonna, we always think of this Anglo-American empire. Um, we have the king's head um, in uh, Charles and simultaneously in Portugal, and this was a burgeoning empire at the time, Sebastian, same reason, two new groups are gonna come in because the king's head has been taught, we have a new way of seeing the world. And, um, and that would be in, in, the, in the Spanish part, they would create something called the fifth empire. In England, it would be the fifth monarchies or the fifth monarchy men. It's the exact same thing. It's pure Kabbalah and they're pure Kabbalists, maybe the crypto Kabbalists. It's this Jacam idea. In Spain, this idea then in the cult of Jacam, it's gonna go over into the new world. And so this empire that we're talking about of spectacle, sometimes we look at the, Ameri uh, the Anglo piece so much more than the other piece. This is a empire of Kabbalah that's going to be soaked in the mix of modern spectacle. So, but especially when I get into England, what's going on at once is the birth of modern spectacle, the invisible God and um, his, and the, the sort of unleashing of his is, I'll just say the invisible God's going to be built up and these new egregores around the invisible God. Okay, so um, you know more firsthand of just how crazy that time was after the beheading of the king. I mean, people tried to restore it. This is even crazier than a tyrannical king. <laughs> so it's a crazy time. But, um, and I remember studying abroad about the, uh, the diggers and the levelers and they're in parliament and they're having visions. It's just straight up hardcore millennialism. It's the same millennial uh, fervor that's gonna you know, create like uh, Bacon's um, New Atlantis or New, New, New Order. Um, that's gonna be the city on the hill. That's gonna, so it's a very pilgrim thing. But what mm -hmm. it's also, it's the beginning of spectacle. It's the beginning of the egregore, but it's gonna be shot through something called political, religion or political theology, it's political religion. And it's essentially Kabbalah. It's trying to bring this unknown God into the world, creating these thought forms, bringing the end from below, from the minds and imaginations of people, hardcore Kabbalah. Um, and the Anglican church kind of put a damper on that. The real interesting part where the empire begins, and I can't even begin to tap on this, England was just a country at this time. The kind of burgeoning idea we had of capitalism are the financiers that leave um, Spain and Portugal, go up to Holland, and it's full blown, the components of what we would call modern capitalism are pretty much there. Now bear in mind, those financiers never left Spain and Portugal. They're, this is going on simultaneously. So there's a series of letters as this new theologies, new th Protestant theology is being worked out. It's kind of the more radical end of the uh, Anglican theology. And sometimes it was prohibited. So there's a great, there's a century of exchange between Holland and um, these new, we'll call them Puritans now. And they're Puritans because it's a, it's sort of, a, it's a beginning to be kind of Gnostic because you're rejecting the history of the church, you're veiling off ideas like forensic justification where belief alone, you don't have to be grounded and have your feet on the ground and kind of reach. And all these things they're tilting already toward, you know, within the faith already. 
So the Anglican Church wants to put a put a hamper on that. They see what kind of craziness comes from it. Um, so th with this exchange, in short, um, at one point when we think of things um, like the Savoir uh, Declaration, um, the, Cat the Catwell Petition, and the development of the Fifth Monarchy Men, what this is essentially is the financiers and theologians are really essentially saying, here's your ticket to empire. They put it all together, go back and read the documents. We will make you rich. You're, you're already special. That's a agnostic characteristic. You have a special vantage point. You're not like the Catholics. They're going to do this state of emergency thing, or we could call it state of exception. Your enemies now are the Catholics. Something like usury, that if you look at Dante's Inferno, that's the bowels of hell. That's a that's going to be turned into something, well, we can overlook that. That's the beginning of an egregore. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. So they have a new ticket to empire with a new theology and a new hermeneutics. The Bible can basically mean whoever the elect among you is. Who is the elect? The elect are the people that kind of go into that untapped zone, can take those interpretations. I think Augustine meant this, but he couldn't have meant, you know, he couldn't have done that. Make a man-made religion and sell it into empire. And I know when we think uh, pilgrims, we think you know these really pious, they probably were pious people for the most part, but that's how this thing works throughout history. It looks like not just Christianity, it looks like super Christianity. That's the Gnostic part. And mm -hmm. it's gonna appear at the end of days like a new and improved Jesus and a new and improved story. So it really ends there. Now I could take this and it becomes very much of a city on the hill, and it's going to, over time, I can get into the next period, but it's going to become a philosophy that God realizes himself through us making that city on the hill in reality. And we can now do it. We've got rid of the Catholic Church, their stained glass, all their nasty sinners. We're going to do it right. We are the elect. And that's a typology that you're going to kind of see in, in um, that side. They need an elect. That component needs to be fulfilled. Someone has to bring them into the promised land. And even for Jacques he had to say this, an elect of the righteous. He's saying this a thousand years ago. There'll be an elect of the righteous. And they'll have that special capacity because they're the ones, I'm talking a little too much here, where you really see the super elect of all this. You can take something like Hebrew letters, and they found this out in Babylon. They're not like any other letters. They, they, they are a symbol of God. They're all in themselves, complete being, self-contained. And you look at those letters, and when you stare, this is the art of negation over time. These are people that can't handle the medicsy, the in-between, that have to go there. You take two things that are perfect, and you do this intersubjective meditation, and you go into the ethereal realm. Now, this sounds crazy. This is literally how it's done. This is literally how the Rebbe's do it. And that's not too different from what a Christian will do if they're sitting in their back cabin in, New, in, in uh, New England and they start staring at these texts long enough and whoa, and it gets exciting because people wanna participate in history. And that's how the Hermeticists do it, to take you from one reality to another. So they take you to a reality uh, of experience, to a reality of uh, creative construction and that's where the magic begins, that we can participate in this process. And it's essentially a, a long macro evolutionary process.
So that's that's going to be channeled into Woodrow Wilson's concept uh, that he literally spoke about. And I know he's got handlers and so forth, but he himself, we're talking about, this is sort of during the First World War. He was the president of Princeton and Princeton for over a century was all about this we, we call it now post-millennial philosophy that the world's going to progress. Just that word itself is evolution. We don't see it. And sometimes there's different, there's good progress, but it can be, it can be hooked on to this other side that God's not incomplete in himself, that you have to do something to make God complete. Um, and so Princeton was really heavy on pushing this because um, I mean, Given the immediate circumstances, America was kind of on the go, industrialization, we got past the Civil War, we're now we're building industry, um, usury must be a good thing, look at we're making a civilization, people are looking at us, how bad could it be? Um, never mind the fact that it's based on usury and the sodomy involved in empire and so forth. <laughs> That's another story. Um, but so he's going to interject that where we're going to see that most fully when we see the new world order created through the League of Nations, um, what he insisted, and this would become part of the United Nations too, is that each nation that was now connected to the colonization project, the ultimate goal of being would be self-actualization. And that's the magic kind of, that's where the magic happens between going from one world or another. It's how a pilgrim, or a, a Puritan and a Marxist can end up in the same place. It's through one reality, self-actualization. In America, if you've taken colleges, it's shoved in every one of your classes, except maybe art history or something. I mean, it's there all the time, this idea self-actualization. The higher and richer you go up through the food chain, you know, and so we live in a Darwinian paradigm. So of course it means, you know, the fittest are going to get up there and you're going to have, and we see it in so many documentaries and show it's all over. It's subtly in all of our programming that the idea that's, and, and it's just a simple question. What do you really actualize? Cause I've bought into this because sometimes, you know, when I have different life experiences and it seems like, but that's, it sounds very Christian, but it's not. It's not. So that's the fairy dust, this idea of self-actualization. Because if you were just sort well, there's this uh, invisible God, and you're going to reunite, reun if they told you this in this sort of language, you would kind of balk. So it's kind of stuck in secular terms. So it sounds kind of easy, kind of groovy, kind of like Jesus, and you can kind of feel good about it. And that's why we have a culture today of people that can kind of go to church and pop a book from like Oprah Winfrey's New Age section and barely tell the difference because the snake is a liar. He's a co-creator with humans through deception and his master plan is to basically degrade people by taking their most base desires and creating it into this God. So this God that comes alive, and, and again, so we got a killing of the king there if we go to the, I don't want to get into this. We can go to the glorious revolution and there's some crazy stuff. I can't get into my book. Look at 1660, the Royal Society of Science. You jump up to this great year of 1666. Now you have this invisible philosophy or this invisible God, negative theology, apathetic going all around Europe because um, Sevatai Zevi is the Messiah and he's spreading this magic all around Europe and even Protestants 
and especially Puritans were all excited. Like some of them went a journey to meet them. We have a funny convergence going on here. So um, yes, at that time, we have another killing of the king and the glorious revolution, but we have the Royal Society, 1666, a great fire and a great plague all at once. But uh, the, snake the snake works through history uh, of the, it's true, the dialectic method, the hermetic method, which is knowing the, knowing the end from the beginning. So you, part you get people to participate in the self-actualization, but the snake knows where you're going. And in this case, um, we will have now with the, with the solutions to this, that, um, that um, science, as we understand it, in an exclusively eminent frame is going to become the sort of the protocol for, for learning and the worldview of people. And so that egregore that comes out of there is going to be powerful. Now I'm getting a little over here. I'm just trying to say how many exciting connections there. I would say if you want to get an idea of the unknown God that's making these egregores, the unknown God that we worship, the unknown God that sounds so much like the God at church, it is, um, the hand of providence, you know, Adam Smith's famous God. And I've delved into Adam Smith for so many years, and I think he's essentially a good guy. But this God of, I think it's a God, essentially he's talking about um, a God of, um, it would be of natural law, that it kind of moves through like invisibly. And sometimes we even think of the eyeball, the God of providence. Um, and um, buyers and sellers are almost just kind of automatically, magically hooked together. Um, and again, there's some truth to that God. I don't know if it's necessarily the God of the Bible, but there's a truth that, that is a that's part of the natural order, but it can be so easily perverted. It's based on a number of assumptions about how human beings are, and it's based on assumptions within an eminent frame. Um, so this God that will basically be a God that takes the God of Catholicism, who a God that it's our desire first and foremost, before we're even thinking about how I feel or what I first and foremost, obey me, love me, know me, and then figure out my will in your life. This new God, it's like, there is no higher thing than being free, free from God, free, it's pluralism, it's whatever you wanna be. But when it's loosened from the ecclesiastical uh, structure um, and it from the sort of fumes of Christendom, you know, people were pretty good and it kind of seemed to be working out, you know, increasingly oligarchs would be taking control of this, um, but it's degenerated this system. The whole world is degenerated, right? The system that we're just living basically um, in this debased ecstasy, whereas Baudelaire would say, like we just get off on the, our, our fetishistic impulse, is it Coke or Pepsi, Channel 3 or 3, and these, this has become our God, we've internalized it. And we will sit and talk about what's going on in the world or how somebody might control us over there. And we're unaware that the worst kind of demons are these demons of our own freedom and our own liberation. And they're worse than the shackles of any kind of king or tyrant because they control us from the inside. And we don't always understand the control. So unless people can understand Gnostics, again, the whole worldview with the snake and the cat, they don't recognize sin as part of the creation, right? Because it's tree and good and evil and sin has its place in it. And also 
recognizing our own sin takes a certain amount of grace. We need to cooperate with that grace or have that grace to even be able to do that. So um, I think essentially that unknown God now is going to put egregores into our head. Um, and for example, in the, the rational actor model, it seems and it functions instrumentally, but it's not true. It's working from another framework. Evolution, which is simply the trick of taking microevolution, uh, uh, micro which is part of our reality and how the world works, forms expand and, and change, but they don't break apart. You know, a, dog, a little dog can become a good dog. <laughs> but what we're talking about in the new world where all distinctions are broken, um, yeah, that has to be collapsed. The distinction between the eminent and then all forms of eternal truths or eternal shapes. So there is no necessary, everything is subjective, I guess is how we say it nowadays. So that God of, 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 of um, providence shines over America and has become the model of the whole world. And the idea, the way, I'm, I, I'm not saying anything new, the way we sort of celebrate freedom um, for its own sake, something about us deep down knows that it's, it's been unhinged from reality. We know that, when, especially when we really have an awakening within our own debasement. We have that kind of sometimes realization, especially if you actually see, you know, if, if you can see a demonic ontology taking place in your own life. So let me jump ahead and I don't know if I'm going, do you want to make any comments to that? Does that, did that resonate at all about the English revolution? Yes. I think that's, that's a period which is very important to understand the dissolution of Christian civilization. This moment of the translation of religious revolution to political revolution. And you've made exactly. a distinction there between the two. And we see this pattern of the killing of the king ritual. These I'm I'm thinking of these three pious, devout, maybe even saintly monarchs. King Charles the First of England and Scotland and Ireland, King Louis the Sixteenth of France, Tsar exactly. Nicholas of Russia. These family men who are truly fatherly to their people, and they are. They are murdered by the revolutionaries, which unleashes this period, as you say, of revolutionary fervor, this period of desiring to immunitize the eschaton. And you read the accounts, whether it's the 1650s in England or it's the 1790s in France or it's the 1910s and 20s in Russia. Just the, the, the most unbelievable things, kind of orgies in the streets, this release of diabolical energy yes so the you can see there the these kind of punctuations in this, this dissolution that's gone on in your book seeing through the singularity talking of secrets of empire one thinker that you pay some attention to is michel foucault and as e michael jones points out this is a thinker that the oligarchs teach in the universities. He is very prominent in the philosophy departments. And you talk about biopolitics, which is very much, it follows on these false Darwinian principles of evolution. 
And I, when I read chapter five of your book, your book was published in 2000 and January 2020. And I read your book and it, chapter five is strikingly prescient of the chapter on biopolitics of COVID because COVID was a biopolitical event. And if we think about these years of the oligarchs studying Foucault, studying biopolitics, studying biopower as political technique, how did that unfold? In, well, what is biopolitics and, and how was it, <clears throat> how did it unfold within the COVID tyranny? Okay, that's a big question. I'll try to use some of it because I do want to go for a little triptych here with another historical period. But, uh, you know, biopolitics, it, all of what you said was true. And I didn't know I was doing this at the time, but there is a school now of, like I said, radical orthodox that take these things, these postmodern ideas, um, and and use them as a critique against modernism. I didn't know I was doing that at the time, but it's ancient techniques of social engineering, the mind, body, and the spirit in a, um, similar in a certain direction. And most people have a frame of mind that history just kind of happens accidentally, wars happen accidentally, fires happen accidentally, plagues happen accidentally, like in London, <laughs> and markets crash accidentally. So we, we, we just, that different way of thinking of things we haven't been trained in that. So biopolitics, um, yes, it has a teleology, just like Chardin would say, his idea of moving to the omega point, moving through them into the, you know, and I'll get, if we have time, I'll get into this, into the metaverse, into the nunosphere, there's a direction to it. And there's a will to power necessarily involved in it. And you don't know when you're taught this at school. So I read it exoterically, I read it theologically, within my both the eminent and transcendent frame and so much came alive. And that's why I'm now reading things uh, like Guy Debard and Baudelaire because there is a lot there to grab onto. You just have to realize the limitations. And what radical orthodoxy does is kind of turns the table on them and says, you're just promoting a system of violence and hatred. So it's kind of funny what they do. Um, so it's a long story with biopolitics. And I do agree the epitome and the fine tuning of that happened during the pandemic. And I can touch back on that, but let me just finish up with the triptych. And I think something big is going on when we go from Maimonides to Jacquem into the English Revolution and the creation of this invisible God now, bearing in mind that this happens during civilizational crisis, the killing of the king. Um, I'll come into a year like right now about 1921-22 and two things are going, there's a lot of things going on at this time, but two events I'll point out are um, the writing of Tehard Shadan's uh, phenomenology of man, which paints the Nunisphere in this very Kabbalistic. And part of the reason I'm using Kabbalah is because it has a teleology, it has techniques, and we can see it because sometimes it's introduced in the churches and people don't know exactly what it is and so forth. But so he's introducing that at the same time Carl Schmitt's introducing his state of exception. Now, I can't get into Schmitt very deeply, but Maybe if you. Yeah, if you Wikipedia Carl Schmidt, you're going to see that it's like a who's who of famous 20th century names that have been influenced by him. And there's a lot of variation and a lot of, uh, you know, different takes on that. Um, so simply what you sort of have right now, at, think about it, 19, they're writing this 19, 19, 19, 20, 21. 
the end of the First World War, the remains of these monarchical civilizations that in most cases had true connections to, I think, the angels and the archangels and were connected into the cosminium, they'd been shattered. And we know what happened with the royal family in Russia. Um, so on top of that, it's a similar, it's as bloody almost maybe, not quite as bloody as, as the 30, world, 30 year war, but you're at times very bloody. And Schmidt, I can't get into his head, but what he's essentially saying is like, people instinctively want to personify authority, but they instinctively, the way they instinctively want transcendence, they want a true, legitimate, valid authority. Of course, we'll, I don't know if we'll get time to think about pluralism and democracy, but he's at sort of this pinnacle of the modern world, knowing that uh, well, I mean, essentially, he's critiquing, he's critiquing the German Constitution, which just like the framers of the United States in the early, it just said, this is weak. You know, how are we going to prepare for civilizational crisis down the road with this Constitution? And so, in short, I think what I'm going to suggest is that he's saying that in a time of uncertainty, we can talk about the church possibly, when there's a crisis, and all these, all these kind of building of the unknown God happened during periods of crisis. There's periods ripe with chaos um, from which usually usurpation happens at that period of time. And we get this transition from one kind of frame of reality to another. So Schmidt's essentially saying the state of exception, who is the true sovereign? Who's going to have legitimacy and authority? And he's saying essentially, I think, what Machiavelli would say and, and that is the person that's willing to grab it. And you grab hold of it. It's, he's saying it's going to be will to power. Um, and Music so the oligarchies. that's what Machiavelli said. Let's just imagine reality without a transcendent frame. That's Machiavelli. Now he's going to say, we need to realize that and insert it into modern politics. So with that, you basically have uh, a legitimacy for the robber barons or the, the oligarchs that can be painted up as competing against one another and just successful and balancing Adam Smith's marketplace if you buy into that paradigm. And so that's what's unleashed in the 20th century, this idea that, um, well, this is what we sort of call the new age. Our consciousness is just kind of trying to click into a higher level. So in the past, there was people that had bad feelings toward each other. We're gonna to try to eliminate those feelings. It all sounds good. We don't wanna hate, but what this is, is it's a complete, um, it, it's an organized destruction of truth claims, of reality, of, of Plato's idea of transcendent forms. Um, and so it's going in full force in the 20th century and kind of gets us to where we're at right now. Because when we think about wars and rumors of wars, um, there is a civilizational crisis. I mean, just within two years, there's people in America saying like, I think I trust a leader in the Soviet, in the, you know, <laughs> in Russia more than my own administration. These are confusing times of crisis. Um, if there were going to be a killing of the king, I don't know if it's possible because there's not anybody that has that kind of authority. But what we see instead are these clownish characters, whether it's, okay, I don't want to say something, whether we have Biden over here or somebody in the Vatican 
or Trump and the hairstyle. And I, I'm sorry, what the, this, the, what's the, the former English prime minister's name with the haircut? Boris Johnson. I mean, who would do that? But it, it's a killing of the king. They're all supposed to look like doofuses. So in our mm. minds, it's it's a gradual. This is how we do things in post-modernity, right? Well, I think that's also intentional by the oligarchs because it's, it's sort of winking at the people. It's signaling that the public authority, the people that are presented as public authorities are actually not really public authorities. They're someone's errand boy. And the cartoonish caricatured nature of those figures is kind of almost meant to invite ridicule because there is this principle in elite theory that power wants to be seen even if it's through this predictive programming open secret method it still wants to reveal itself that's the revelation of the the egregore it has to actually be seen right uh, the masses in that way yeah, uh, so, you know, to kind of maybe, I don't know if we're getting toward the end of this, but if we kind of think of Christ, um, all things were created in him, through him, by him, for him, and it would be these reality where things are complete in themselves. That is what reality is. It's something that's com it's contained in itself. It doesn't depend on anything else. So he would create these perfect, you know, the true, the good, the beautiful, mercy, love, I mean, a love that we can't show, um, it, it just intimate. So what we see in this world is intimation. When Christ came into humanity, he took all of those forms into his physical earthly body and he ascended back with them. And that's why the metaphysics is hooked up and we have these intimation. And that's the barrier that we have to kind of respect between the image that we're about to pursue. It's kind of laced with, to some extent, buffered by these forms that that in, in a perfect union, you're not destroying and the sacredness of the distance and the forms themselves. The Antichrist body, I believe, instead of being contained by all these justice, truth, peace, and I'll just throw this out. What more, per, you know, the God that I worship in, on the cross in, in probably what was kind of a scapegoat kind of moment where Christ realized something's going on beyond, besides these people that they can't control. And he says on the cross, you know, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If you think of the gods of the old world, that would just blow your Who? What other god? Are they? That's the god you worship, and it's it's just a love we can't speak of. And when we think ourselves, like, what is heaven? And we get a picture in our mind. All we know is he gives us this idea of true, beautiful, good, and the idea of love. And it's usually in our own light when we're not. It's it's the kind of love that we can't explain. Um, the Antichrist body is going to be filled with egregores. There are things that they could, you could probably plug into a church and people would barely kind of notice they're going to have currency. You're not going to look strange by speaking of these things or saying, this is my paradigm. And that's what he's completing, I believe, is a whole body filled with these egregores. And that will equal a sort of mega egregore. So when the Antichrist comes into the world, and again, I just want to work on typologies that are kind of tried and true. I don't want to stretch too much. I'll maybe make some connections at the cosmic level, you know, so I don't, you know, but the, and this is where uh, I think I'm just going to follow Tomberg here. He is going to have a system prepared that the three temptations of Christ are going to be overcome, right? And so we know it's the bread, 
and flying and having all these kingdoms. And we're very much in a system that's giving us promises like the metaverse that, um, that you can fly, you can kind of go and put on these things and be in different systems through a system of socialism. You'll always have bread. You might have to eat some bugs with it, but you'll always have bread. And that essentially in your own little world, you, can, you, you, you now have the capacity through um, locking in um, what I believe the metaverse is, 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 is just kind of a marketing for the internet of bodies when you're really locked into this thing. So the unknown God revealing himself, it's not just in our consciousness, it's going to go into a frame of being that's beyond plurality, that is um, all signs and symbols will truly be where Baudard, Baudard thought that none will go out to the eternal, none will go out to the original, none will go out to true being. We are not there yet. We still, I don't agree with, you know, Baudelaire, but we are moving toward things. So when the church dumps some of these propositions that have been eternally true, we are, we are possibly moving into not only the passion of the church, but something that would be um, a sort of darkness on a, uh, you know, sort of biblical level. Um, we're turning another corner. I don't know if this is the end times, don't know, <laughs> but but that is where we are. We are living in a world of controlled apocalypse. So other people are playing with the timelines, bending the hand of God. The snake always has done that, um, but it just needs more egregores to come complete. It needs more allegiance until that total allegiance is there. So our consciousness, any consciousness that is still stuck in the old world, just like you know, the communist revolutions, they have to be um, derastated. So um, I, I think these are the times that we seem to be living in the world. I mean, we're told, right, by the powers that be, we're going to bring in a new reality, essentially. The idea of the old reality, the idea, you know, Jesus is fake news, you're a hackable animal, there, you know, this idea you have a soul and you're special. They're, they're telling us in a very, you know, blatant way um, that we are killing Christianity to bring in a world order that to me, if this world order sounds attracted to you, you really have to start wondering what you've attached your values to throughout your life. Um, and I don't know how this is going to unfold in the following months or the years, but what I do see taking place is in addition to this um, WEF, World Economic Forum, um, thread, discussion, program, is an alternative thread. It's just taking place right now. And it's gonna come from your alt phony right. That's gonna be anti, this is what I see framing right now. I can say the characters, but I probably won't, but I can frame them. Or I, I, could, I could name them if you want me to. They're putting together this storyline that they're against it. It's the big names that you have to be connected to. And they're gonna say we're anti, but you actually see what they're saying. And it's the typical right, left, same direction. We're just getting, we're going to hit the brakes here or there and make some suggestions here or there. If anybody wanted people to kind of look at, to see, you know, where they're trying to take us, because they're trying to get us between the WEF position and the alternative position, and they're basically identical, identical positions. And so if you're trying to just watch right-wing media and you're going to hear these people, you're really being deliberately duped into buying into this at this point in time. 
um, buying into this alt-right anti-WEF um, program. Peter. Great Awakening versus the Great Reset. It is. I, I think that's fair. Um, and um, I don't know what's going to come out in the mix. But um, if I had anything just to suggest what I'm saying, like what is the point of Kabbalah? Um, it does stem out of Gnosticism. It is a shapeshifter. So it can appear like a Puritan in one, in one decade. And then it can appear as a, a radical Marxist with the crazy hair. But it's coming from the same source. People that are improperly grounded, want to participate in history, have differing notions of progress in their own time. But it's a, it's a religion that conflates on each other. Um, that, that, yes, one kind of idea, and everybody knows this deep in their hearts, that what we call neoconservatives, it's just the worst kind of parts of the left and the right put them together. And we know they're up to there. We know they're up to no good. And, and that's our modern state of exception. Um, we can't make any truth claims about Catholicism. We can't make any truth claims about our foreign policy, but we can't, there's one group that can still make truth claims in the state of exception without anybody challenging them. And it's fine. If you don't want to go there, you don't have the, you're not prepared to challenge them. It's not my favorite thing to do. There, you'll you'll never have anybody say thank you. We are the people that are scapegoated, right? We're the modern scapegoats after the the tower burst, and so that idea when a leader of the free world comes up and says you're either for us or you're a terrorist, mm -hmm. that idea is still stuck in our minds 23 years later. That to critique your own government, which is the foundation of our system, means you're a terrorist. It's a theater of the absurd, and this is the land, and people um, are double-minded when we do these things. And God asks us, you're either all into my hyperstatic union, properly grounded, or you're going to be floating in between two worlds. And possibly, when you come and meet me, I might say to you, uh, depart from me. I do not know you, you worker of iniquity. And I mean, so if this is really resonating with people, these little things like why are you going off on this and you're going to end up doing that and you're going to end up being a soothsayer, <laughs> you have to kind of see it's it's not just like today it kind of came into existence by accident that the, what we call new age kind of feels like Christianity. It's very precise in the way it parasites and mirrors reality which is Jesus Christ. And, and we can definitely shield ourselves from this because in our sacramental system, it will have a uh, counterfeit uh, sacramental economy. Being able to identify those things is helpful. So we know that we receive the true spectacle Christ in a worthy fashion. And so that we can increasingly pull our minds and imaginations from the spectacle into um, this uh, glorious return and union that Christ has planned for his believers. Amen. And as we're speaking in Lent, that is the true participation metaphysics. It's not this false participation in the, the becoming of history. It is the participation in the life of grace. And as St. Peter even says, being partakers of the divine nature and that's the life of the saint and that's the life that we are invited to 
You mentioned there a real Schmittian moment. You were referring to George W. Bush, his address to Congress, September 2001. Every nation, quote, every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you're with the terrorists. We can maybe in future talk more about Carl Schmitt, but that's a classic moment. Total enemy, total war, total state. The identification of the total enemy, the mobilization to total war leads to the Patriot Act, leads to 17 intelligence agencies, the suspension of the Constitution, the state of emergency. And we are getting hit by state of emergency after state of emergency. The oligarchs are just going to keep coming. Didn't you know we've got a climate emergency? Didn't you know that we've got a toxic masculinity emergency? They're just going to keep coming. So I'd be delighted to have you back, Dr. Haugen. It's been highly interesting. A lot of different threads to follow there. If you'd like to maybe leave the listeners with any invitations, any thoughts. No, I want to say thank you very much, uh, Peter, for uh, it's very validating to find um, anybody out there uh, in our world that uh, listens or or reads my material and has been edified in any way. So um, I've enjoyed our conversation and I I would be more than happy to join you anytime again. I would say to to your guests, um, I think what you're doing out there um, as far as a voice for uh, freedom, Christianity and Catholicism is very important. And so I would ask your uh, viewers uh, to to really appreciate the people that are asking hard questions and um, thinking through some very difficult Um, issues. We know these totalitarian regimes have techniques of control and we're being turned left and right. um, And we have to go back to sound theology, sound sound traditions, and and embrace the things that the church has always recognized as being eternal truths. Amen. Dr. Haugen, thank you very much. Viva Christo Rey.